This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage, the courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring up, but that we think about the most. Our current series is on the untold stories of dementia, how we live with it in our loved ones, and how we live with the fear of getting it ourselves. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Stephen Sabat about his work on listening to and relating to people with dementia. Professor Sabat is a professor of psychology at Georgetown University. He's co-led support groups for Alzheimer's sufferers, and he's on the board of directors of the Washington, D.C. area chapter of the Alzheimer's Disease Association. The main focus of Professor Sabat's work has been on the intact abilities and even the strengths of people with Alzheimer's disease. He also has researched and written about what it's like to have Alzheimer's and how to make communication better between those who have the disease and those who are caring for them. He's written two books. The first is The Experience of Alzheimer's Disease, Life Through a Tangled Veil. And more recently, he co-edited a book called Dementia, Mind, Meaning, and the Person. Welcome to Safe Space, Steve. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. For me, reading your your work, what strikes me is that the theme that underlies it is always about communicating that the person, even with advanced dementia, mm-hmm. is still a full human being with wishes and feelings and preferences trying to communicate, trying to make their selfhood known. Absolutely. And how did you arrive at that? How did that become your great passion? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess I mean, I always kind of started with if somebody's trying to tell me something, it's up to me to, to adapt and try to figure things out. Um, people say advanced Alzheimer's disease or, you know, advanced dementia. And what is conjured up in people's minds in, in, because of mass media and, and programs like yours, thank God, can make a difference here. What, what, what people have in their minds is, is somebody in, a, in something like a vegetative state, and and that's just not the case. And that is, you know, a person can have a diagnosis of advanced Alzheimer's or advanced dementia, and that what that really means is that they perform on neuropsychological tests in certain ways that, that are quite worse than they used to. But it doesn't mean that they can't understand what the social situation is. It doesn't mean that they, they wouldn't be humiliated if they were treated in a way that was depersonalizing. So the, the very thing, the very items on a test that, that can make a person diagnosed with advanced Alzheimer's have nothing to do with what a person can do in a social world. Okay, let's get, why don't we give examples? Like what would be something that would show up as really ill on a test okay. compared to something that would really be what affected them in their in their world? Okay, so um, there's a test that's used everywhere. It's one of the outcome measures in lots of drug studies. They use it in nursing homes and in hospitals. It's been, it's been around for the last uh, 38 years or so. It's called the mini mental state exam, and it's made up of 30 points and questions. The first 10 points have to do with what is called orientation. So the person is asked, what day of the week is this? What month is this? What year is this? What town are we in? What building are we in? What floor are we on? Things like that. Now, that's all recall stuff. So I, w- I was actually I was giving this test to somebody one day, and 
Hopkins, and uh, and I said, well, what day of the week is this? And the guy said, I don't know. I said, okay, well, let's see. Um, is it Monday? And he said, no. Is it Saturday? He said, no. I said, is it Thursday? He said, yep, and it was. Hmm. Now, so the guy could do it with a multiple choice format, but he couldn't do it by recall. Now, the point I'm trying to make is if you said to a professional that a person on the mini mental state test had a score of six, you know, that's uh-oh. But not being able to answer those questions really doesn't have anything to do with if I was talking to one of your loved ones in your presence about you. And I'm saying to your loved one, well, so what is really troubling uh, about her these days to you? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, she throws her laundry in the freezer. Yeah, 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 I, I can understand how that would really bother you. Um, and, and, you know, she's, she's uh, saying nasty words that she didn't hear. Yeah, well, that can be. Now, you're sitting there listening to this and becoming furious. Right. And actually, it happened one day. One of the people in my book um, Mrs. D, she was standing in the hallway at the day center that she attended every day, and, and I was there, and a couple of uh, staff members were there, and her husband comes to pick her up, and it was the winter, she was wearing a turtleneck top, and it was she was wearing it outside of her slacks, and so she had, by the way, a, a single-digit mini mental state score, and um, so her husband is there, and somebody on the staff asks her, did you have a nice day today, and she's about to say something, and he interrupts and says, oh, she loves to come here, and she's always getting me, rushing me in the morning to get here, and nobody asked him anything, but he's right. answering for her. So he's so, speaking for her, which is insulting. It is, and then, of course, she is asked another question, and while she's answering this, he starts tucking in her top in, into her slack. In front of everybody. she He doesn't see that she is standing there and her eyes are bulging out of her head. Now, she was outraged, but she didn't say anything. They went home. And the next time I saw him, which was maybe two days later, he says, Doc, i got to talk to you. you know, what, what's the problem? The Alzheimer's is getting worse. So, well, what happened? He says, well, the other night when we, I took her home, and she wouldn't talk to me. She wouldn't look at me. And when I told him, well, I don't think her, her anger was irrational, um, I think she was really pissed off at you because you were tucking in her blouse and her shirt and whatever in front of all these people, and she was humiliated. And he, he just backed off immediately. He said, oh, my God. And so I, you got to believe me. I love her. I mean, I would never do any – and I believed him. But he saw her top outside of her slacks, and he assumed that he could do that and it wouldn't bother her because, after all, she has Alzheimer's. So – she was not irrationally hostile. She was righteously indignant, mm. and properly so. Part of what I love about that story is that he did not have any bad intention. No. Because I think that this happens on a micro level, you know, all day long. It's almost the norm that we are taught to see someone with dementia, that they're never going to remember it anyway. Right. They're not even maybe sure it's me. And it sort of is a permission to treat them as if they're not really human, as not really yeah. an adult. Mm -hmm. And sure. um, and then we see that agitation and frustration and anger are, you know, that's what that produces, and then we wonder if that's a symptom of the disease. Oh, yeah. I, I, um, I was at a, a conference last winter, and the whole idea of this was to try to kind of find ways to destigmatize Alzheimer's. And um, there was a neurologist on the on this 
panel, and, and she was really wonderful, a very, very sensitive and kind person. And at that point, though, she jumped in and said, yeah, but but the, but the agitation, we got to do something about this agitation. And you see it in these nursing homes, and they say they get agitated. And I just, I just, I couldn't help myself at that point. I said, hold on, think about it. Suppose you were living in a place you could not leave, even if you wanted to. And suppose further that you couldn't recall the last time you saw your loved ones and wished you could see them, but there's nothing you can do about it. And suppose further that there's a television on and it's showing something that you couldn't care less about and you can't change the channel. You can't even turn it off. And there's suppose further that there's really nothing to do there because bingo doesn't really do anything for you. And maybe you're just getting really antsy and you kind of got to walk around just to get rid of the, the feeling of being totally powerless and not even wanting to be there. I mean, that that's the agitation. But it's, there's a good reason for it, because if it were you, you'd go crazy. Now, the assumption is that the person who can't answer what, what day of the week is this, what month is this, what season is it, the assumption is that that person can't go crazy, too, in a situation like that. And it's just a bad assumption. Right, because if we're not identifying with the person anymore, it seems to me, whereas if we see it through their eyes as if they were like us, then mm-hmm. it all starts to look so different. It does. So one of the things I really learned from you reading your book was um, it, this idea that, that the emotional reactions of someone with dementia make sense. As opposed to seeing them as a symptom of the disease, you assume that there is a meaningful communication being attempted, and it can be really challenging because they often do have difficulty finding the right word, and the conversation can be meandering or slow or repetitive. And um, and you you practice something called indirect repair, which is sort of a way of finding your way toward that meaning. And I wondered if you could explain how it is you listen, and what it means to practice indirect repair. Well, it's kind of what we do in our everyday lives. There's something called direct repair, and everybody knows about that. If you ever took a second language and you you said la instead of la in French, and and, and the teacher would correct you by saying, no, it's la. (laughs) That's direct repair. Indirect repair is you're trying to repair your own understanding. So if you said something to me and I didn't quite understand, I might say to you, Hey, listen, doctor, I'm really not sure I understand here, but let me run this past you, and then you tell me if I'm understanding what you just said. And then I'll kind of give you back my version of, of what I think you said. Are you trying to tell me this? You'd make informed guesses about what yeah, it might exactly. be. And, and what, what's really cool about that is that is that the person who has been diagnosed and is sitting with you knows that you are really paying attention and actively listening and that you really want to understand. Well, it's interesting because I think what happens when I observe sometimes people relating to people with dementia, they can't understand and they just smile and go along. Mm-hmm. They act as if they, they pretend that they're understanding. They're kind of, they think they're sort of humoring the person. Yes. And in fact, the person is very aware yeah. that this is kind of not working. Yeah. That there's no real connection happening, and it's infuriating. It is. And, yeah. But, but to, the thing I think that's important is that the, 
to understand the good intention of the listener, which is that I think that the listener mistakenly believes that it would be upsetting to the person with Alzheimer's to point out that it's hard to understand them. And they think, I really do believe, out of very good intention, they think that they're upsetting them less by pretending to understand. I think you're right. I think you're right about that. And and yet, when you think about it, it's it it's the way you say something. If I say if I if if you're if you're saying something to me, and I'm really not understanding, and I say, listen, I I'm having trouble understanding what you're saying, so I am owning the trouble when I say that. Yes, yeah, so I make it my problem as opposed to their problem. In a exactly. I saying, help me, help me. I don't quite get that. Yeah, try. I know you're trying to tell me something. Yes. Well, even that, I know you're trying to tell me something, is sort of a, a leap. I mean, in a way, maybe that's both of our hope for this interview, is just even assuming that is already a little yeah. shift. Well, there was a guy who's also in the book, the, the, the top guy. He, I referred to him as the top guy, and because he said he was. He always dressed really well, like he was going out to play golf at the country club or something like that, and he was very worldly around. And, and I was trying to make some contact with him, and I struggled. I really worked with this guy to try to understand. Um, he, the first time I met him, he was really fulminating about. He didn't. I couldn't. He was saying a lot of words, and I didn't understand what he was trying to say. I mean, he, the words were formed well. They were words you would understand, but put them all together, and they just didn't add up. But he was very clearly upset, and so and I got a word in edgewise, and I said to him do you feel like crying? And he looked at me and said, you're damn right I do. And that was the first coherent sentence he'd spoken. But I was asking him about his feeling, you know, and he understood that I understood. And from that, at that point on, he would say to the nursing students there, he would point to me and say, he's trying to get in here, and he pointed to his head. He understood that I was trying to understand what he wanted to tell me. And that was a huge moment for me. Yes. When you realized that he got it, he could tell totally mm-hmm. what was happening. And that brings me to, to wanting to ask you about the innate abilities that persist through Alzheimer's and even the strengths of people with Alzheimer's. And I wonder, tell me what you mean when you say these abilities that persist, what are you actually referring to? That's, that's a great question. And, and it, it, it's, it's, that, it's that everyday social stuff. It's like what that guy did with that top guy that he understood that I was trying to understand him and he was gratified by that. Um, Mrs. D, who who could be humiliated by her husband addressing her in front of people, um, that is self-respect is, 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 a, is something that we value in this culture a great deal. In fact, when somebody doesn't respect him or herself, we think it's, 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 pathological it's wrong you get some therapy you know you got if you don't care about yourself I can expect anybody else to care about you, you, that that whole line of thinking so when a person who has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's because of certain memory problems or language problems is still able to have self-respect to show humor humor is a humor is a huge hugely complicated ability to tell a joke to get a joke is incredibly complex thinking going on. Think about, think about it. You tell someone a joke and they don't get it. 
and then you try to explain why it's funny. I mean, you have to turn yourself into into a pretzel to try to, in the contortions you have to do. Well, you see, you thought I meant this, but I meant that. And But when a person gets it right away, here's an example. A woman who asked me if I would meet with her and with her mother who was diagnosed and living in a nursing home nearby. And I said, sure. So they came over to the, the day center and um, I meet them and said I knew they were Jewish and so I, I was introducing myself and I and I said to the mother do you speak Yiddish and she she said no and she was sort of shy, shyly said no and I said well neither do I that's a good thing I don't either and she, with a straight face and she she smiled and then I said oops I'm sorry I lied I, I do speak Yiddish I said gefilte fish which is a mm-hmm. type of fish you serve at Passover and and so she chuckled and, and suddenly she walks over to the aide that was with them from the nursing home, and they walk away very brusquely down the hall. And I notice that um, they go to the restroom. So the daughter says to me, God, you, you turned her mood around so quickly. It was amazing. She was so uh, and, uh, agitated and annoyed when we were coming here, and you got her to smile. And as she, the daughter continues and says, well, you know, my mother doesn't say very much in the nursing home except to the aides whom she – feels much affection toward and she'll say to them I love you so now the, the woman the mother and the aide come back down the hall and they come over where we were standing and I look at totally straight face I look at the woman and I say you know when you walked away so abruptly I thought that I had said something that offended you but then I noticed that you had gone to the restroom so I guess we're both relieved <laughs> Yeah, and she cracked up laughing. She did. and I, I said with a straight face, I wasn't going to give her any cue that it was funny. So she cracked up laughing and looked at me and said, "I love you." Ah. And now, she got the double meaning of the word, just as you did. Yeah. So, to to be able to think like that is very different from being able to say, "What's seven from a hundred? Right. So, Humor is a strength. So those tests will never show up, that ability, and also her ability to know that you were someone she could trust. Exactly. And she was telling you, like, I care about you. You're someone I want to have a relationship with. Yeah. So she's discerning. She has good judgment, yes. too. Exactly. <laughs> and another intact ability. Exactly. They're all over the place. You just have to recognize that how is this person still like a person? <laughs> Yeah. And we don't look for it. We don't see it. And we don't, we haven't figured out ways to test for that because these standard batteries of tests, they don't really test for kind of aspects of personhood. That's right. And that's the whole, see, that's, you're just hitting on an incredibly important point. Standard test batteries need, they're quantitative. I mean, how do you quantify a joke? I mean, you know, and and what's funny to one person isn't funny to somebody else. Um, and to make this worse, by the way, one of my former students went on to work at NIH as a research assistant before graduate school, and she was testing somebody. And the person, and she wrote to me about this, incredible, the person made a joke. And she told the principal investigator for whom she was working that that, that guy made a joke. And the principal investigator said, I don't believe you. And it, it, it's gotten to the point where there are professionals who will not believe because they think they know, having very little interaction, but they see the test scores, and they assume that the test scores are 
are measuring all the cognitive abilities, all the thinking abilities that people could have, and they're not. Right, and part of what I wanted to say about what you're saying and is that if the problem was simply that the tests kind of overemphasize defects or overemphasize pathology, that would be one thing. But one of the things I learned from you is that when you read the test scores and you assume, oh, okay, this person's really, really ill, it then shapes how you relate to that person. And exactly. that what actually affects the person's abilities more than anything is the way that you relate to them. Yep. So that what happens is there's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy where suddenly we talk to the person as if they had almost nothing left. The person gets so infuriated and desperate and or grief-stricken or that they they kind of give up on you or they stop trying or whatever it is, understandable responses. Mm-hmm. And then they appear so much iller than they actually are. Yeah. I want to come back to something. Um, you use the phrase excess disability in your book to talk about these kind of unnecessary disabilities that come up. But tell me, what? how do you define that? What do you mean by that? Well, the, the guy who really coined the term was a person named Brody. And the idea was that a person has a certain type of brain injury. And because of that brain injury, they, they can't do certain things. So you have brain injury that you have damage to the motor area of your brain and you can't move your right arm. Okay, so that's that that's clearly connected. Um, excess disability would be disabilities that would not be predicted by that same brain injury. So, for example, a, a woman is described by her husband as doing nothing at home anymore. And the implication of what he was saying was that she isn't capable. She had Alzheimer's and She's not capable of doing the, 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 the things she used to do, like setting tables or meeting up or what have you. And he assumed that she couldn't do that stuff anymore. And so with the day center, um, and she, she had difficulty speaking, finding words, and so she didn't often speak, but she got it when you spoke to her. And uh, rather than saying to her, uh, Oh, could you help us set the table? What, what I did one day was I, I, I took a place setting and I put it at, in front of a seat at, on a table and I said to her, can you help me do this and, and, and do this all? And I motioned all around the table and, and she, boom, she went and she helped set the table. So she was doing things like that at the day center that her husband said she couldn't do. Be, at home, And she couldn't. She didn't at home. And so... This is this is a version of excess disability in the sense that he didn't let her do that stuff, as it turned out. He did everything. And he did everything by his own admission because he, he said, I'm, maybe I'm being overprotective. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid to ask her to do things because she might fail. And, and I wouldn't want her to experience failure. And I said, well, I don't really understand that, and it makes perfect sense. It wasn't the brain damage that was causing her not to be able to set the table at home. She wasn't being given the opportunity. Does that make any sense? Yes. Part of what's so poignant is in each of these examples that you're giving, it seems that the caregiver, often out of the best intentions or protectiveness, you know, does the very thing that makes it harder for the person who has yeah. Alzheimer's. But it's sort of, it's, there's this almost this very poignant missing each other. I wonder if sometimes people prefer to think 
that the person with Alzheimer's isn't really there anymore because they just can't bear to feel that. And that it's almost easier to think they're not really here. Yeah, there's a great scene like that. I mean, I think it really captures that. There's a great scene in the film Awakenings. Robin Williams was uh, playing Oliver Sacks and... uh, Robert De Niro was playing Leonard Lowe, a, a, a guy who had this, uh, uh, what they call it, encephalitis lethargica. Did you see that film? Have yes, you? I did. Well, there was a moment in the film where where the Robin Williams character uh, is, is talking to the physician, next played by Max von Sydow, who was originally involved with these people in the hospital. And, and, he, and, and they're looking at film of that was taken at the time. And Robin Williams says, God, what are they thinking? Because the person was sort of, the person in the film was sort of frozen in not moving, but frozen. And, and Max Fonsina says, they have no thoughts. And Robin Williams says, well, how do you know that? And Max Fonsina's character says, because to think otherwise would be unthinkable. That is. Yes, I couldn't bear it. I, I, if, if, for them to know anything in this state would be unbearable to me. Well, exactly, exactly. I remember thinking that it was a, almost a blessing that someone who had dementia would sort of cross a certain threshold and then kind of not really be aware anymore. Yeah. And then in my own experience, I see that that actually really isn't true, that people are aware to the end and that that, that really is kind of a painful thing to get. It's a mixed blessing, it seems to me. It is. It is. And even if it's painful, and even, you know, they're not the way that you see, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is somebody there, and I am making contact with that person. And and that person knows that I know that he or she is there. I mean, that that is getting really to, to where the rubber meets the road in this life. That you know, acknowledging one another that way and honoring the light that is within, that is huge. And and even if it lasts for two minutes, it's huge. I mean, how many times does that, do we have an opportunity to make that happen? Stephen Sabat, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. But I want to thank you, actually, on a more personal note also, which is that... Um, I read your book when my father had dementia, and at the time I was sort of hoping that my father really wasn't aware anymore, because it seemed to me that it would be very hard to be him in the state he was in. At that point, he had not recognized any of us for some time. He was essentially mute, or when he would speak, it was very hard to understand anything he said. And I read your book and really decided to listen to him as if he was trying to say something real, which sounds so obvious now, but at the time seemed like a leap of faith. So your book changed the way that I listened to him. And what I found is that when I listened to him differently, he started speaking differently. And he started making more sense. And I would sit with him, sometimes for half an hour in complete silence, And what I found is that after about a half hour of being quiet in a very quiet room, he might be able to say one thing. And six months before he died, out of the blue, he said to me after about a half an hour sitting quietly with him, he said, I'm sorry, I'm not wise. 
And it said everything. It said everything oh, to God. me about that he knew he had dementia mm -hmm. and that he could see that it pained me. I mean, it spoke of his love. And it made me feel like he saw me and yeah. um, that he was so fully still in there, which pained me. That's incredible. What a beautiful, beautiful moment. And you have that for as long as you have it. Yes, and I think that I had that moment with him partly because of you. Oh. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. Well, you, you can't even, uh, you've made my month, uh, mm. <laughs> my year, because that's something that, that's, that's why. You know, you, you say why, you know, why you do this stuff. Well, that's why. That's why. It's a treasure for me. Thank you so much. Bless your heart. I really, really appreciate this. You've, um, I'm, it's been an honor to speak with you. This is WMPG. I've been talking to Steve Sabat about the ongoing personhood of people with dementia and how knowing that changes the way we relate to them and ultimately changes the way they can relate to us. If you have a story about a loved one with dementia that you would like to tell in the hopes of helping others, please email me at dranne, D-R-A-N-N-E, at safespaceradio.com. You can also, if you, if you only got to hear part of this interview and you want to hear the rest, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com where you can have the full link to this and you can also email it to someone who you think may need to hear it. You can also uh, subscribe there to get a weekly email with a link to the show. You can download us from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for consulting with us. Coming up next is Speak Freely.